Too often we find ourselves chopping at the leaves of evil rather than getting right down to the root. Well, today we've got guest Terrell Kennedy in studio with us to talk about what is really the root of all of these issues that are that have us scratching our head wondering what to do, and that's fatherlessness. You're not going to want to miss it. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and the host of the podcast, joined uh, with my wonderful co-host, Mr. Ray Mellick, who's the editor-in-chief here. Ray, how you doing? I'm good, Brian. How are you? Oh, having a blast. And uh, as you can see here, uh, we've got a, a guest in studio with us, Mr. Terrell Kennedy. Terrell, how are you? I'm quite well, thank you. Good. Glad to have you. Um, before we jump into the incredible podcast that we have for you, um, always want to tell you guys uh, where you can find us. Um, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Go there, uh, leave us a five-star review, subscribe, like, turn the bell on to make sure you're getting notifications, all that good stuff. Uh, tell everyone how much you love the podcast because we know you do. Uh, and everyone always asks, what can we do to help with what you guys are doing? We love 1819 News. What can we do to help? The biggest thing you can do to help right now is just help us get the word out. Subscribe, like, follow, all those things. Uh, and the biggest subscribe that you can do is go to 1819news.com. I feel like the red button came on today. I looked at the website, and I think the subscribe button is actually on the website. Good. Which there's humor there that will fall, you know, anyway. Inside joke. So, uh, But it's there, so go to 1819news.com. Subscribe for the newsletter. That newsletter is our morning edition as though a, a newspaper was getting um, thrown on your front steps by the paper boy back in the day, except it's coming into your inbox. It's got all the news you need to know, all the opinions, all the podcast, everything we do brought to you every single uh, morning, Monday through Friday. And subscribing's free. All you got to do is enter your email address. There's no fees or anything. It's a free website, but by putting in your email address, it puts you on the list to get that email first thing in the morning. Right. And we're not going to sell your information. That's right. So yeah. There you go. It's safe. All right, so let's jump in. Um, as I said, we've got uh, Mr. Terrell Kennedy in studio with us. I think he's got a really uh, incredible story and viewpoint and worldview uh, that we would uh, love to just have him share uh, some of the things that he's done and accomplished and things that he's involved in. So we invited him into the studio to talk a little bit about it. And so I think a good way to begin, um, just tell us a little bit about your story, where you grew up, your parents, uh, some of the things that shaped and molded you. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, let me get my balance here since this is my very first podcast. Yeah. But I uh, appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. Let's talk about some things, and uh appreciate the opportunity just to share my viewpoints. Yeah. And uh, we'll go from there. I am uh, 69 years old, will be 70 next month, so the years are swift as I've heard all my life how quick life is, and life is quick. I grew up in Mobile, Alabama, uh, grew up in the projects there. My grandmother and mother are the one that raised me, provided for me, and they did well. I went to private school up until the seventh grade until I begged them to let me go to school with the other kids and took vacations every every year and never wanted for anything. So they provided for me well. And um, I grew up in a very different time than now, which uh, I would like to share my perspective on 
on the times as they are now. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me. The culture at the time when I grew up, uh, when I grew up was very much a segregated culture. I, I, I remember my grandmother walking me to the bus, to the back of the bus all the time, and I didn't understand that. That was just the way things were at that time. And uh, I remember when we took a trip 100 miles away from Mobile to Thomasville, Alabama, that we would always go on a Friday night. My grandmother went there to take care of her grandmother. And she would always be cooking chicken and all kinds of food Friday night before we started on our trip Saturday morning. And we always took a roll of toilet tissue. And, uh, of course, that didn't mean anything to me. It's just the way it was. And later years revealed to me that the reason she did that was because we could not stop at any business to relieve ourselves. So I often saw my mother or grandmother or friends go off into the bushes alongside the highway and relieve themselves. Um, I remember that... Uh, we didn't go into white communities when it started to get dark. It just, the only reason you were ever there was for housekeepers and people who kept the lawns and all of that stuff, but we didn't have any uh, connection with going into the white community beyond that. Uh, I didn't go to school with any white kids, never. And so my whole point of sharing that is that to me, that was systemic racism. Uh, didn't see very many blacks on TV. We had three. Matter of fact, didn't see any for a long time. We had three channels. And um, I remember maybe at some point, maybe in the 60s, we might have seen the first black. And it was like, wow, it was an exciting time. And so systemic racism clearly was alive and doing well at that time, and I imagine it was much worse um, going backwards. I was born in 52, so years before that, it had to be much worse. So I've seen changes take place in this country. Uh, I graduated from high school in 1969 and then moved uh, went to Birmingham where my mother had moved to take a job with A.G. Gaston. And we were, I, I was leaving Mobile after graduation, going to Birmingham just to say hello and goodbye to her because I was going to New York to pursue riches and fame. And uh, well, that didn't happen. But anyhow, I uh, my mother persuaded me to go to school for a while and I went to Lawson State for two years and then decided I still wanted to go to New York. Went to New York and lived a pretty fast life, did everything a young man wants to do and after three years realized that there must be something more to life than the life I was living. Um, for, for those who are a certain age and maybe those who understand history a little bit, uh, I'm a child of the 60s, and 60s was a very radical time. 
great departure from the traditions uh, of the past and uh, the hippie movement and all of that. And I'll just say without giving details that I was I fully embraced the 60s. Yeah. And uh, hung out in Greenwich Village in New York, and people who know about Greenwich Village know about the people who hung out there. So that was part of the my journey that caused me to start to evaluate my life um, after three years being there, and I said I need to get out of New York, go back to Alabama, where I might where I felt like I had a better understanding about life. Got back here. And maybe a month or two after I got back, uh, my mother had me to meet a friend of hers. A lot of y'all would know her, Lois Coleman, Mama. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mama Lois uh, uh, was, came to the house and knocked on the door, and uh soon she got inside the door. She said, I've been wanting to meet you a long time. Your mother been talking about you. And she said, uh, let me ask you a question. If you were to die today, do you know where you spend eternity? Yeah, I'm sure I'll go to hell. <laughs> and uh, she asked me if I wanted to uh, change that. I said, sure, what do I need to do? And she told me about Jesus Christ, and that's when the pushback started. I, I, I didn't want to go there. I grew up in the church. My mother, grandmother was a gospel singer, but I was far removed from the church. And um, she saw me throwing up a bunch of questions and Nothing but a smoke screen. She said, well, I'm going to let you go. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about this later. Two weeks later, they invited me. My mother, she invited me to go uh, to Broadwood Presbyterian Church. It was on 280 at that time. Reverend Frank Barker was preaching. This was June 1975. And um, I hadn't been to church in a long time. I said, sure, I'll go to church with y'all. Mm-hmm. Went to church and got there. Beautiful sunny day. All these white folks with bibles in their hands, smiling at me and welcoming me and all of that. So it was a beautiful thing. And so I got inside the church, sat in the back, and Reverend Barker was preaching from the book of Jeremiah and um, talked about the corruption uh, uh, and uh, of the government and how the poor was being oppressed, this and that. And I said, wow, that sounds like today. But at the end of his sermon, he said, you see, men back then are no different than men today, that we all got a problem. And that problem is they have a sin issue. Mm-hmm. And the only solution to that sin issue is Jesus Christ. And he had me because I had never heard exegetical preaching mm-hmm. where, where he was given historical perspective of the times and the meaning of the words and all of that. And I was caught. And I... I and so, right after the sermon was over, Lois came over and said, hey, I want you to meet somebody. And she took me over to meet a guy by the name of Dale Cutlip. And uh, Dale is a, a Jew by birth and uh, a very uh, excited believer who immediately shared his little one-minute testimony while everybody was passing out of the church. And... He asked me that question again. Did I know where I spent eternity? And at that time, I was certain, prayed to receive Christ right there in the aisle. And for the first two years of my faith, I attended Broadwood to get grounded in my faith. 
Mm-hmm. And that was the demarcation line in my life. It turned my life around, uh, and my worldview is greatly impacted by uh, by my faith in Christ. Amen. So many uh, people we've had sit in this chair that we talk to that have had, you know, radical transformations in their lives and have gone to, you know, achieve greatness and, and do um, amazing things. Um, their story is always different, but always the same, right? And they all seem to know this guy named Jesus, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and a little bit of, of my testimony, uh, I've given it on, on a previous podcast, but um, I ended I went to prison, so I didn't embrace the 60s. I was born in the 80s, <laughs> but there may have been a little bit of that 60s uh, in my life and um, did a, a lot of bad things, ended up um, going to prison, I ended up getting saved in prison by the grace of God. And that was my demarcation line that you talk about radically changed, put on a completely new path. Um, got out of prison, got married to the one of my dreams. We now have six pregnant with our seventh child. Um, and, and God has, you know, put me where he's put me now doing, doing this. So, um, I just love, always love hearing that story. That's the same, but always so much different. Every it's different for everybody, but that one thing is like I met Jesus and everything changed. Yes, yes. And um, it it is interesting for you know for those people watching this podcast that don't know Jesus, um, that I hope that they see you know for the next you know ten years of us doing this podcast, there's going to be more people who come and sit in that seat and talk about meeting Jesus and how that changed them. So thank you so much for sharing that. So. Um, You've worked a lot with um, young men. Um, talk about the your organization. Um, well, let me give you some background to my work life. After okay. I came back from New York, I, I've been all over the place. I drove a tractor and trailer all over the country and then um, decided that I needed to go back to school and I had met this young lady that we were communicating for over a year long distance. I would be on the road a month at a time and come back and see her and I wanted to end that cycle and so I stopped driving tractor and trailer and um, did drove a concrete truck and then eventually went to a place that um I dreamed about when I was in New York. I noticed that there were all uh, many types of people uh, from different national of different nationalities from different places in the world that came to New York and started businesses and were doing so well. And but I noticed that there weren't many blacks at all that started business. And I wanted to do something to make a difference in that area. And that's when the idea of being an entrepreneur mm. entered into my mind. And so uh, I uh, started uh, trying to find out how to get training as a financial planner and ended up going with a company that uh, Armstrong Group that provided me opportunity to learn about finances and to work with families. And uh, at the been with them a couple of years. Uh, my pastor challenged me to come into the church to be uh, a stewardship director because he had become a client of mine, Samuel Pettigrew of Sardis Baptist Church, uh, challenged me to come into the ministry there. 
And I went there, and when I first went to the church, there were 500 members, and they grew to be uh, close to 2,000. So I worked there during a very explosive time of growth for eight years, working with the population, the, uh, uh, the believers there, and learned a whole lot about um, about the church and how it worked and about people, families, and all of that. I came to the conclusion after being there for eight years that the major issues that we experience in our society is mainly because of the lack of male leadership. Mm, preach. Men that don't know God especially, but just men not being available for their families. And that's where uh, the idea of working with boys entered into my mind. I left uh, Sardis, um, and because of a friend, Dre Neighbors, that so many know, mm-hmm. uh, I went to him for counsel about my next step, and uh, he encouraged me to uh, come into a protected life, and I went there as an independent agent, uh, and uh, for the most part, had was there for 25 years. Wow. And uh, so... Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine at some point when my daughter and his daughter were, were leaving to go into college, Gary Art, and uh, asking Gary about, so now we're both internesters, what are you going to do? And he told me what he wanted to do and what he was going to continue to do for the kingdom. And he asked me, what I what was I going to do? I said, I really want to do something with boys. And I had been going over to Arrington Middle School having rap sessions with eighth graders, talking to them about what they believe. I say, listen, believe what you want to believe, but you need to be able to defend what you believe is being good because the quality of your life is going to depend on your ideas. And Gary said, man, that's pretty cool. He said, uh, I would like to do something like that. Uh, you think? And I got friends who would like to do that. Do you think a white guy could do that? I say, that depends on the white guy. <laughs> and so uh, he said, put something together. And I did. So I put a p- proposal together uh, and brought it to Gary on a Friday. And the proposal, the name of the organization was Fit for Life. Mm. And uh, I gave the proposal to Gary. He looked at it and he said, what do we do now? I said, I don't know. I hadn't, I hadn't thought that far. <laughs> and he asked me if we can meet together with some people on a Monday morning. Maybe some people Monday morning, long and short of it is, he said, hey, we're going to do it. So Fit for Life was started back in uh, 2006. We entered into Huffman High School. I met with uh, young boys, ninth to 12th grade boys. And um, we, uh, uh, it was all about building character. Amen. And uh, taught them about finances. And we provided tutoring and algebra and uh, did that for about 14 years. Wow. And kind of got uh, burned out, needed some help. Felt like looking at my age, I needed to develop a curriculum to be able to put in the hands of some young person to go into other high schools and do what I was doing. And uh, we... uh, couldn't find anybody. I didn't. It's not part of my skill set to, to develop a curriculum, and so it didn't happen after a year. And so I started using 
abilities to help other ministers and then came along this program called Elevate. Started in uh, Denver, Colorado 40 years ago and it is much much more robust than uh, my program because I was doing things after school. Uh, This program has been accepted to the Birmingham school system so we uh, we have classes where kids can choose our class as an elective. Mm-hmm. And we have instructors that we have put in, that we have chosen, and we've hired them, and we pay their salaries to be in teaching character develop, uh, development skills and also life skills. And so they're with the kids during the day in school, teaching and doing the things that we have after school. Uh, our program, uh, part of the program is uh, to partner with other individuals like Young Life and mm-hmm. other ministries where we can go to another level. I make no bones about it. We are, we are we're in very dark times in this country, and I would say it's a spiritual war that we're in. So to neglect the spiritual part of trying to impact kids' lives, uh, uh, we would do a huge disservice. Yeah. And so um, that's 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 what we're doing now. And uh, so we started in Huffman High School last school, beginning of the last school year, and now we're about to enter into another high school out west. I won't call the name right now until it becomes mm-hmm. public, but okay. we will be entering <laughs> a second high school already, which is quick. There's a big need. Uh, for the body to get involved in the lives of, uh, of these kids. We see all of this darkness on the news every day, and I know people sitting back saying, what can I do? And I'm absolutely convinced because of the relationships and the circles I travel in, there are so many people out here with resources and skills and abilities that want to get in the game, but they don't know what to do. Mm. And I say, yes, it is dark right now, but... God has called us for such a time as this. Amen. Yeah. That's it. That sounds like we, it's another story we keep hearing is exactly what you just said. God is doing something. He's on the move. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what, what are the main problems facing young men today? What do you think? Oh, well, um, the main problem is what I said a few moments ago, men are missing in the family. Family is broken. Um, the black community is uh, experienced this high birth rate with with single parents. They're single parents. Yeah, white community is going through some of the same stuff. It's just that uh, we ha- the numbers are much greater in yeah. our community. And so I saw this over thirty some years ago when I was at the church, and I used to uh, go down into the projects down the street from Sardis to hang out with the boys. And I just saw this big dropout rate of boys, and and and, and it just con- has continued up until now. And I used to say to my wife friends, I say, "You guys can continue to hang out over there in Mountain Brook and pass by these communities, this and that." I say, "But darkness does not remain stagnant; it expands, yeah. and we all are going to be impacted. So we're going to have to get in the game." And we did a little this and a little that. But it is knocking on our door every day, everywhere. And uh, so I think we're seeing the fruit of all of the 
broken families, all these boys growing up without dads. I'm just convinced that when you got a dad that's in the household, taking care of their family, molding and, and teaching these kids, being a model for these boys, uh, you wouldn't see what you see today. Uh, it's clear by the data. People who like to look at science and data and all of that, 95% of the guys that are in prison are, uh, did not have dads. Uh, Terrell, let me go back because, and I think you make a great point that what we saw the fatherlessness in the black community we're now seeing in the white community as well. Yes. It may look a little different from the outside, but the core of it's the same. Yes. <clears throat> but it wasn't always that way. So no. what what started this? What you know, when you go back, you and I are almost the same age. Uh-huh. I was born in fifty five. I grew up in Atlanta, which is a little different environment, but still I remember segregation. I remember the buses and and uh, I'll tell you a quick funny story. The first time I rode a bus with my mom, I was little and I saw that big bench in the back of the bus, and I wanted to go ride it because I thought it was really cool. And my mom's like, no, 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 we're, we'll sit. She didn't explain why. Yeah, she yeah. said, no, 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 <clears throat> we're not going back there. Yeah, yeah. Years later, I understood sure. why. But but what – do you look back and, and have a sense or any thoughts of, of what happened, particularly in the black community, that fathers just quit being a part of those lives when they had been uh, for so long? Well, I'm not as clear about that as I – uh, I've read a number of reasons why, but I will say that the black community, when I was growing up, uh, had doctors and educators, and we were they were all in the same community for the most part, even if they was on the outskirts, uh, and they had an impact upon the community. Culturally, it was a different time. Um, yes, segregation existed, but uh, there were some values that we all held in common. I, I I know, I remember well when a girl got pregnant. It was shameful. I mean, sometimes they disappeared. They went to live with an uncle or somebody yeah. else while, until they had the baby. So the values were very clear. Uh, I'm not saying things weren't happening. It's just that. We knew what was right and we knew what was wrong, and we held those values in common. I think some of those things is kind of a common grace or a social, again, and people would look at it now in this like libertine society of, you know, do whatever makes you feel good. They don't like it. But at the end of the day, there is social norms that can actually keep a culture the way that it should be. Like, you know, um, like maybe it's a girl getting pregnant, maybe like whatever it is. Uh, or we'll just say um, people living together before they get married, mm-hmm. right? That used to be a, a completely unacceptable thing. Yeah. Now it's like the complete and total norm. And then you get someone like, you know, me and and I, someone in our family that, that, that goes through that and does that. And we come and say, hey, you know, this isn't God's best for you. You guys know this. You were raised better than this. What are you doing? You know, and then we're the, the crazy radical, yeah. you know, uncle and aunt, my wife. Well, and, <laughs> you know, to go back even further, culture changes to where even now single parenting, where it used to be, how do we stop single parenting? Now it's almost celebrated. Like, how dare mm-hmm. you say somebody yeah. can't raise a family mm-hmm. on their own? When I think you're right, I think children need to see a mother and a father, a male and a female figure, to understand roles and learn perspective from both of those people. And we're just, and that's not just a black cultural thing. Now it's it's no. very much evident, even in the Mountain Brooks and the Vestavias and the and the, the what we think of as yeah. the white communities, even though there is crossover but still 
it's a cultural <clears throat> thing that that our society is is now trying to uh, celebrate rather yeah. than say how do we how do we fix this? Yeah, no fault divorce, rampant, right, right. And that was something that wasn't before. And it's like okay, you know, there was almost kind of a social thing. It's like yeah, no marriage is hard. You guys are gonna have to work it out. Yeah. Now it's like yeah. oh oh he said what mm-hmm. you should leave him. Yeah. You know, and then and then they do. So they're encouraged to divorce. Then they get divorced. And then then we're creating this circumstance where these children don't have a father. They have a father every other weekend. Um, I was uh, raised in that. You know, my parents got divorced when I was two. I was raised by my mom. Um, and, you know, I, I experienced that. And, and, and it, it caused a lot of problems for me, obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> where I ended up. Right. Um, and so. Um, it is, and it's rampant, and it's all over the place. And one of the the kind of anecdotal story I'll tell that kind of goes into what we were talking about. <clears throat> when I was in prison, uh, uh, after I got saved, I worked in the chaplain's office, and they had a card ministry. And so, like Hallmark and you know Dayspring and these other things, they would they would give cards, and it'd be you know Happy Easter, Happy Mother's Day, Happy Father's Day, Valentine's Day cards or whatever. And each person in the prison, and I was in Sterling Correctional Facility at this time. There's like two thousand inmates in in the prison. And Mother's Day came, Mother's Day is before Father's Day. Mother's Day came. It was my first Mother's Day working in the prison. We couldn't get enough cards. It was crazy. There were so many cards, and we were sending them all out. I'm like, man. And so I'm literally working, you know, 12 hours a day just to get everybody their cards that they can send to their moms. And so um, as Father's Day approached, I started preparing to get all these cards out that it was going to be like in Mother's Day. And we got, like, two kites requesting cards for Father's Day out of 2,000 people. And I'm like oh my goodness and that was the like that's when it kind of clicked for me Mm -hmm. this is the problem and i would argue and i would go to the mat on this we talk about all kinds of stuff on this podcast we talk about lower taxes we talk about gambling we talk about marijuana we talk about uh, i mean you name it all these these issues that that we're having in the government and i really do think and we can start getting into school choice and public schools and private schools and home schools and and all the other different things i think it, it comes down to one thing and, and I don't know how we do this legislatively, and I don't think it's done legislatively, fathers in the home, and not only in the home, but being intentional and active in the discipleship and raising and nurturing of their children. Man, and if if there was some way to do that, uh, I think that would solve all of these problems. What, what, do, you, what do you think is, is, is the answer to that? Fatherlessness is a huge issue. What can we do about it? Well, uh, you know, I work with ninth graders to twelfth graders, and uh, one of the things I realized at some point that uh, we need to start much early. Yeah, I was we, just thinking yeah, that as you yeah, said ninth yeah, to twelfth. Yeah, I'm like, by, man, by the, the clay's time, already by, hardened. Yeah, yeah the cement's hard. By the time you get there, uh, you're you're working against the tide. Yeah, by then, and so uh, I think the church has really got to. Uh, get it, get intentional about discipling kids, teaching parents how to have these conversations with kids. Let's have these conversations in the church. I mean, you can't have a conversation out in the public anymore without someone trying to quote counsel you, and mm. uh, that's a huge, huge issue in a society when we don't, we cannot change ideas. So I love to be in the life of these young people. Let's sit back. Let's have a rap session. Let's be creative and take them uh, with parents and all. Let's go on a retreat and we sit back and talk and talk and talk. 
we're, we're, we're giving them ideas. We're giving them an alternative to what the world is giving them. Yeah. And so uh, we got to talk to these boys. We got to say to them, this is God's plan for your life. Most of the boys that I mentor did not have dad. And I said, you do not want to create the same situation for your kid that your dad did for you. You don't know your dad. Yeah. And I said, the life that you're living right now would be much better if your dad was there helping your mother. The mother's there doing it all by herself, doing the best she can. Yeah. And so the church, this is this is God's work. The government can't do it. Amen. And so the church has got to become really convicted about the role that God has given them to get into the lives of these people. And, and I know they want to. They just don't know how to. And they're scared if they say something, they're not going to have butts and seats. Yeah. I mean, flat out, these pastors are in dereliction just like the fathers. I mean, it's it's flat out. And not all of them. There's definitely good pastors out there that are, that are you know, doing uh, great work. But I think overall— no one wants to come in and, and say those hard th- things, those challenging things, because they feel like if they say something hard or challenging, then they're going to go to another church where they're going to get their ears tickled, mm-hmm. and then they're not going to be able to pay their rent, right? And so now we've got these pastors who are sitting up there essentially neutered because they're worried about losing people rather than saying what it is that God requires them to say. Uh, let me be clear about something also. The reason I agreed to do this podcast is because there are things that need to be said that you will not hear generally in the public airways. And I didn't know what the format was going to be, but uh, I have an issue with the things that are tearing this country apart in terms of racism or systemic racism and all the different tribes, or organizations, the BLM and the this and that, the transgender. They all have an agenda, and it's all tearing this country apart. And I just say that I have quite a few friends who are uh, living what I would call a good life. Those friends that I've grown, raised my kids up with who have dad and mom at home teaching, holding them accountable and all of that, they are living unbelievable lives. I have three boys and a daughter. And they are all thriving. Amen. Uh, I've been married for 40 years. Be 41 years this May, uh, this June. Oh, sorry, wife. <laughs> it's the mic. We all get in that trouble. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but be 41 years, you know. And I, I used to tell the boys, I said, you would love to live the life that I live. You, I live a great life. And it's because God has given me the mindset, uh, the ideas, and the principles whereby I can stand firm and I know what is right and what is wrong, what is true. And then that's the other thing. Truth doesn't matter anymore, but truth yeah. always matters. You know, let me, you, you were raised in a time when you, as you pointed out, by law in many cases, could not go into certain places. You faced certain obstacles that were regulated. You couldn't go to certain schools, couldn't get into hotels or restaurants, couldn't ride in the front part of the bus, all these things we've talked about. Uh, you have seen a tremendous amount of change in your life for the better. And yet um, we still hear uh, today the movement, as you referred to, to the BLM and others that talk about how, how uh, difficult it is to be black. And it is. But but you've seen it when it was really a governmental enforced institution as opposed to now it seems to be more of a um, 
attitudinal mm-hmm. thing, if that makes sense. Do you, talk to me about just what you've seen in terms of change in your life, where we are compared to where we were. Well, I touched on this early on when I talked about how many blacks we saw on TV. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't see any, you know, and how we celebrated when we saw one. And now uh, there's a great disconnect for me, and I'm willing to be shown where my thinking is is incorrect. I mean, blacks are everywhere. You can do whatever you want to do. You can go where you want to go. I travel all over the United States, and I just have a great time talking to whites and others, old whites. I'm not saying racism doesn't exist. It will always exist. It exists in the white community. It exists in the black community. You know, I don't have time to try to uh, understand how to correct what happened X amount of years ago. Uh, the door is wide open as far as I'm concerned right now to do what you want to do. And I, you know, I, I'm willing to be told where I'm, where, where I'm wrong. And so I don't see systemic racism as it's been said. I don't trust organizations like BLM. They've already revealed what they, what they believe and they, and they are very much opposed to the very foundational things that I believe. And I don't think enough people know Mm-hmm. what they believe and what they stand mm-hmm. for. And it needs to be said. It hasn't been said enough. It was in their, uh, basically their bylaws, their guidelines, their their points of existence early on. If you went on their website and looked, that they wanted to tear apart and disassemble the nuclear family, the Western, white, colonized, whatever you know, call it nuclear family. And then they caught so much flack for it that they pulled that part of their site off. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it gets at the heart. And like you said, this is a spiritual war. Um, God says that this is how he created things and it's good. And so when you have that spirit of the age that's coming in and it's trying to reverse every single thing that God said is good mm-hmm. and just flip it up on top, you know, on upside down and you see organizations and, 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 and again, it's not just critical race here. It's anything Marxist related at all. And I think, you know, critical theory and critical race theory are just extensions of Marxism as it's permeating into Western culture. Listen, I would say this. Whenever you take God out of the conversation, out of the mix, anything goes. Yeah. yeah. Anything goes. That's why it's okay to, um, you know, identify as this or that. And it's supposed to be true. Yeah. And the only way that that is true in our society is because we got a government who no longer regards God. And they then can say, they, they, now we're worried you're talking about might makes right. Yeah. The power is making what is right. No, we're going to say no. And again, it is the church call to say no to this and push back mm. vigorously. I'm not certain we're doing it. However, I'm absolutely convinced that God is on the move. He's doing things, and uh, you are going to do God's will <laughs> eventually because you can sit back and try to enjoy this life without being about his work, and it's not going to work. We got to get in the game. That's right. I was uh, I was teaching Sunday school class right before uh, the pullout in Afghanistan started, and I, I was teaching from Daniel, and I used a phrase. I said, you know, the world is not falling apart. God's plan is coming together. Mm. And I, it, it gives me great hope over that. And then the people the next Sunday came back and we were talking about all, and they go, are you sure the world's not falling <laughs> apart? And I'm like, well, it feels like it yeah, is, it but it yeah. is God's plan coming together. Yeah. You're in the schools. 
Um, there was a time, uh, even here in Birmingham, uh, what we would call the black schools, even though underfunded and, and great disadvantage, still produced educated and, and, and respect, you know, business people and leaders in that community. You're in there now. What's, what's the difference and why are we struggling so much in schools? Um, and in a time of segregation and poor funding, you would have thought that would have been the bad time. But some of those men rose up like yourself to be successful business leaders, uh, community leaders, family leaders. Uh, and now we, we, we don't see that. What, what do you see in schools? Uh, Again, it goes back to the family. What these teachers are having to deal with every day, people need to, those who can, need to go into the school sometime and hang out. Oh, I can't imagine. Because I, I see teachers walking out beaten down. Mm-hmm. I mean, what they have to deal with many times in discipline, not all the kids, but enough kids to cause disruption. And, and, and so when I was in school, if my teacher or the principal said that I did something, that was the law, <laughs> you know. And and my, my grandmother said, we'll take care of that. Yeah. You know, it's like my daughter's a teacher. She has to fight with parents all the time who take the kids' side. Come mm-hmm. my, my, and she has to document. She has to be careful to document everything so that when an irate parent comes, it, this is the situation, ma'am. Yeah. And, you know, and so uh, – we, the pro, what, what, what we're dealing with, kids who don't have foundation stuff, I look at my grandkids with my kids. My grandkids, the dad and the mother, early on, three, four years old, been exposing them to letters and puzzles and reading sure. to them. and all that. They start school at a, at a great advantage. Yeah. Yeah, my two-and-a-half-year-old grandson memorizing Bible verses. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Catechisms. And I think, you know, and, and again, like we can't even really imagine. And, and so I moved here from Colorado. There's some bad stuff in Colorado and the government is, is you know, anyway, it, it at least reflects what is going on in Colorado. But, um, you know, I had a, a friend, uh, one of my wife's friends, actually, that was a teacher at Robert E. Lee High School or Robert, yeah, Robert E. Lee High School in Montgomery. And, you know, she's um, white teacher that was there thought she was, you know, and, and again, felt like God was really using her and then was experiencing the same stuff that you're talking about and just felt the pressure, felt the pressure, felt the pressure. And she's like, man, I, this is so hard, but I really feel like I'm doing good work. And then one of her students <clears throat> walked outside and got her brains blown out. Like, mm. right. You know what I mean? Mm. It's just, and, and it didn't, I don't even know that it made the news Yeah, mm-hmm. because yeah. it's just like, and so <clears throat> it really does get like we're we're expecting the schools and and read schools equals government right we're we're expecting the civil magistrate essentially <clears throat> and how I break it down is you have the family the church and the state those mm-hmm. are your kind of your three forms of government right and we're expecting the state to do the things that the family and the church are supposed to be doing because we've handed this authority and responsibility over to Caesar and it was never up to Caesar. It was never up to the civil magistrate. It was never up to the state to be doing these things. And the state loves to gobble up as much power and authority as it can get. Um, and I think, and, and I'm with you, I, I think if we don't go back to um, biblical foundations, and again, okay, don't <clears throat> don't believe in Christ. That's up to you. Don't believe that, you know, uh, he's king and, and, and he's made a way for salvation. Okay, that's fine. But let's go back to American roots then. Let's go back to the Constitution. And those things are, are, are chalked full um, of like our entire legal system is essentially based off of English common law and William Blackstone, English common law and William Blackstone are based off the Bible, right? <laughs> the, 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 um, 
I'm trying to think of the the, the terminology they called it case law. Is the the case law that Israel had in the Bible? They used that case law, found the general equity therein, as the confession says, in the case law to to develop English common law and for Blackstone to essentially, you know, do the laws that that were on our books when we started and when we when we organized our society based off of these principles that happened to be biblical principles everyone thrived and flourished and it was and it was great and this country reached the type of success in 100 years that it took other societies thousands of years to not even come close to what we did right and so you know there was there was major um, greek influence and roman influence and stuff in what we did but at the end of the day um there's a huge massive christian influence and if we don't get back to those roots um, it's like you said, anything goes, right? If 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 God is not right, if the Bible's not right, then might is right, and then anything goes. And 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 I think we're seeing that. What well, let me just real quick, Terrell. Um, you're in the high schools, you're teaching character or development to these kids, but when they walk out of that, they're feeling a completely different pressure. Yeah. Talk about that and what you see in either the successes and even some of the heartbreaks that you've run into with with your work with with high school kids. Well, even with what we're doing in the school, as you say, they leave and they go home to a very different situation that's, that they've been seeing all of their lives. Give you a, an example. I had a friend, uh, a kid in the class, uh, uh, I almost called his name, but anyhow, he uh, uh, was one of the kids when we were having our discussion that uh, agreed that he that that he was having sex, and I said, "You're gonna get caught, guy." And I said, "When she calls you and asks you, tells you that she missed a period, what are you gonna do? You gonna say, what does that mean?' And she's gonna say, "You know what it means. I'm pregnant." And then I said, "What are you gonna do then?" And he he has no answer. Sure enough, my wife and I was at the bowling alley one day. He came over and he said, hey, Mr. Kennedy, I said, what are you doing here? He said, I'm over here with my girlfriend, my little brother. I said, oh, I want to meet your girlfriend. She's about seven months pregnant. Mm-hmm. So I said to him, I said, I assume that's your child. Yes, sir. I said, so what you going to do? I don't know, Mr. Kennedy. I said, yeah. So anyhow, I went and talked to his mother because he had stopped coming to class. And she was working over there off the parkway at the service station. And I said to her, I said, he's not coming to class anymore. She said, I don't know what I'm going to do with him. I, you know, him and his girlfriend stand at the house with a new baby, and I got to, I'm buying milk and diapers and stuff for him. And he wants to tell, I asked him to take the garbage out, and he tells me about my old man need to be taking the garbage out. Mr. Kennedy, he doesn't have anything to do with my old man. I take care of my old man. That's none of his business. She didn't see the absurdity mm-hmm. <laughs> in what she was saying. So mm-hmm. she's living in the house with a guy, the daughter, the, the the girlfriend, and the son living in the house like husband and wife. And she's saying, I take care of my old man. That's none of his business. That's what our kids yeah. are dealing with. That's what they're seeing. That's what they're seeing. My wife at the time was was the director of Urban Young Life and was working a program called Mentoring Moms in Winona where they were dealing with the, the girls that had the babies and paired them up with other moms to talk about how to mom and how to how to not how to stop having those babies so you can graduate from high school. And it's but it's a tough culture because it's almost an expectation 
that that uh, that's just going to happen, and it's just tough to. As and I, I appreciate what you're doing because you're you're trying to put into these young men a value and a vision for 20 years down the road, and then they get out and all they see is the next hour mm-hmm. of whatever they're living with, and that's got to be just difficult. Listen, we have got we have got to come together as brothers and sisters-in-law, link in the Lord and link on. We look at these murders, over eight, 9,000 black boys, men, children are killed each year. The numbers mm-hmm. are going up. And we're our own worst enemy. Yeah. I, I often say, we don't have to worry about the white man. We're wiping ourselves out. And why is that not being dealt with from our leaders and in, in, in the public ring? You don't hear anything about us killing each other unless the police kills you. Yeah. You know? Or when someone who is white says it, and then they get basically, you know, pitchforked, and you yes. know, because they 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 said it right, and so um, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. I think something that that I've experienced because of my background and the things that I've done, um, have I've gotten I guess maybe a window into some things that uh, people that look like me have not seen. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I think the power of story is really huge in the story that we're told and the stories that we tell ourselves. And I discovered this, and, and, and I could be wrong, so feel free to correct me. But when I was in prison, I was, I was doing very well in there trying to change my life. And everyone that knew me in there knew that I was going to change my life. I was left alone by the gangs and stuff because I essentially made an agreement with them. You're not going to have any trouble from me. I'm not going to be on the poker table. I'm not going to be involved in any stupid stuff. I'm here to change my life. And as long as I stuck to that, and I did, they didn't, they didn't mess with me. And I would have some other guys that were on that same path with me and they'd be black guys. And, and just the weight of trying to change your life in prison and live a, live a a good life with a future in prison is hard enough. It's very hard, extremely hard. But then all these, all his, you know, old acquaintances, black guys would come up to him. And I remember specifically, they came up to him when me and him were sitting down reading a book together in the day room, like some type of self-help book talking, I think it was seven habits of highly effective people working with each other. And they came up and said, man, what you doing reading these books? You know, you ain't never going to make it. You black. And he says he might make it. He's white. But, you you know, you black, you ain't never going to make it. And and not only is that a, a, a black guy in prison who's trying to change his life here in that story, but I think they hear that story from the time they understand words that you're never going to make it because you're black. Essentially, you can't make it in this world because you're black. And I feel like that's a story that's told in the community. And I feel like there needs to be your story and stories like yours that are told almost from a bullhorn in these communities that, you know, you can make it, but if you're told you can't, you're told you can't, you're told you can't. And the only way that you are going to make it is to, to play ball or sell drugs. That's what it's going to be incentivized. And there's just this, it's like this story on repeat that you can't make it. And if you do make it, this is how, and only few, only a few can do that. I, I laughingly referred or wrote a column about the AT&T commercial with LaMelo Ball and his father uh, where his son's talking about wanting to be the employee of the week after being rookie of the year. But his dad, the last line was, that's my boy. Ain't nothing he can't do. <laughs> and I thought that's what dads need to be telling their sons yep. from the moment they're old enough to walk to the moment they leave their house. You're my son. There's nothing you can't do. Uh, it's just an encouragement message that, we, that, that gets lost. And prison's another area how many young men are arrested that don't have even a high school diploma? Uh, I don't know. What, what, what's your thought on pri- what needs to happen prison reform-wise? It's just not building more prisons. That's not hey, the answer. Listen, 
The only thing that's going to change the heart of man is Jesus Christ. That's right. <laughs> and so what, we, what they're doing at Church of the Highland and maybe some other churches going inside the prison, because these men, these brothers that are in prison, uh, uh, they're hurting. They've been hurting for many, many years. Their lives are wrecked and they know it. And Somehow or another, the love of God has got to be made known to them. Go in, mm-hmm. do what we can do, hang out. I, I've gone into the prison. I sat with the guys for a whole week uh, with the minister. I went in there, and it's just, you know, you look at these guys who look just like your next-door neighbor, some of them, you know, but they're in there for murder. Yeah. You know, they're in there for life and all that kind of stuff. It's like God, God wants to meet you, and we need to go in there with that. Uh you know, I'm not an expert on that at all. All I know is that God can change hearts. That's all I know. Yeah. And that's that's what needs to be in there. And what's interesting, the things that you go into these high schools and teach are the same things that they're teaching in prison. And it seems like, well, maybe we need to, just, like you say, keep moving it back younger and younger. <laughs> yeah. where we're starting to teach these life skills yeah. and these, you know, skills. Well, we're um, got probably about 10 minutes left. I, uh, there's two questions I want to ask, um, and we'll start with the first. Um, the, the Democrat party has basically set itself up, postured itself to be the great salvation for the black community. Um, why is that an error and, and what, what can be done about it? Well, uh, let's be clear before I say anything that I am disheartened by both parties. Yeah. Well, preach. By both parties. And, and yet there's one party who is lockstep and a lot of immoral uh, ways of living. Uh, everything, for the most part, so much that they support, uh, fundamentally I oppose. That's the, that's the Democrats. Uh, I do not support gay marriage, so uh, I'm going to put myself out there to have stones thrown at me. I do not support transgenderism. I do not support abortion. I, I noticed down there, I think it's on First Avenue, this big, beautiful building, Planned Parenthood, mm-hmm. in the black community. How could it be? All of the black babies that are being aborted, being killed. Mm-hmm. I don't support it. The Democrat Party supports funding that situation. It's absolute murder, and it needs to be said. Uh, I don't support all of the money they are printing, you know, we work hard, my wife and I, to accumulate what we've gotten. And now I see it being diminished by inflation and all this reckless spending to say to a certain community to get votes, I care about you. It's a lie. We have killed the incentive, the, the, the drive to accomplish something by sending all this money out, free money out to people. And so... Uh, I, I don't I, I don't support it. and I see I, and I see Republicans uh, going right along with a lot of this mm. stuff. At least at least they are saying we don't support abortion, we don't support the this gay marriage and this and that and etc. But they they are causing a lot of issues as well. I I use the word quite often that they are pimping the people. That's, yeah. a, that's a word from and the street. <laughs> I've said, so the way that the Democrat Party, the way that they treat the black vote, um, they basically know that it's there and that it's guaranteed. They pander to them, throw a little bit of money at them, say that, promise them stuff, and then they get that vote. And it's funny because then the Republicans will sit over here and be like, man, you know, look at look at these black people. 
you know, just, just being duped by the Democrat party. And I'm looking at them like you realize Christians are the same thing to the Republican party, right? So you get this huge mass of people that get lied to by these Republicans. Oh, I love Jesus mm-hmm. and we're going to stop abortion and we're gay, you know, mm-hmm. not going to allow gay this and gay that. And then they pander to the Christian vote and mm-hmm. then the Christians go vote the, the the moral majority, you know, the Christian evangelical movement and all this other <laughs> stuff. And we're, we're, we're supporting uh, a political party that, that could not care less about us. And it's funny because we're considered kind of a conservative outlet or whatever. Um, and um, it's, it's not our goal to be conservative. Our news is right down the middle. Our opinion page leans a little more right because, you know, for now, Al- Alabama's made up of conservatives and there's no media outlets doing that. So, hey, fertile ground. But we criticize, we spend almost zero time criticizing Democrats on, on, on anything we do. We are after Republicans because they're the ones that have the standards. They're the ones in their bylaws. They're the ones saying that these are the principles that they are supposed to be abiding by, which are conservative principles, and they're abandoning them. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would say that's probably 80% of our podcasts so far have been um, you know, calling out Republicans to, you know, we have a Republican supermajority in the state. Um, and they've, um, you know, abandoned for whatever reason, whether, you know, they just listen to special interest because the special interest people are there, whatever it is, they, they are not, uh, living up to their end of the bargain. And so we're, we're, we're critical of both parties as well. Again, again, if you, if you're not in tune with God in terms of what he wants, you could get lost. And, uh, uh, I just, I just, you know. I would love to be able to have a sit down with many of these politicians. And then if they don't do what they say they're going to do, somehow or another, they, we need to make known to the community. They're not doing what they say they're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and my second question was going to be human sexuality is under attack. You know, what lies have been swallowed? You kind of touched on that, but if you want to expound on that anymore, um, just the realm of how society as a whole has basically bought hook, line, and sinker. Um, this perverted sexuality. Well, you know, again, you take God out of it, anything go. And again, we back to Mike makes right. Vast majority of people don't buy into this identifying as this and transgender. I was listening to a piece on the radio this morning where one of these guys, there's a, a website and I don't listen to it, but on the website lives uh, for uh TikTok lives on TikTok. Some lady has mm-hmm, I saw that. Yeah. And one of the people that she had um, pasted on there that has made a statement about doctors, he was given a case for being a transgender. And he pretty much said, you know, when doctors, when, you, when you're born, doctors guess at what your gender <laughs> is. Guess? They don't know until you at some point decide what you are. You know, sometimes they get it right, and a lot of times they don't, he says. It is complete nonsense. <laughs> and, again, it's being supported from higher up. We have it in our government. Yeah. I, it, it, it's, it's, I'm out of my mind in terms of trying to understand the world that I live in now. <laughs> yeah. It makes no sense. Yeah. So. Well, that takes us. To about the end of our time, really enjoyed this. Very insightful. Um, really glad to have gotten to know you um, over this conversation and look forward to, to many more conversations. Uh, thank you for the work you do. Yeah, thank you. 
Ray, you got anything else? No, I think it's in, uh, a good a good conversation. We got away from the political candidates, and let's just talk about the issues that people yeah. uh, are dealing with. And I think you're, uh, Mr. Kennedy's absolutely right. If 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 we elect folks and they don't do what they said they were going to do, then they've got to be held accountable. We've got to tell that story. So um, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think um, what I love most about this time here is that you know I feel like we've been spending uh, a ton of time chopping at the leaves of evil rather than at the root. Right. And, and so, like I said, we're talking about school choice and all these other things and again, school choice matters. Tax reduction matters. Like these are all things that are good and will help human flourishing, but we're not at that root. And I think this, this conversation really kind of is reminding me of what that root is. And I want to read a Bible verse that I think, um, talks about like what, what, and, and so I think, a lot of people, when they hear the word revival, they think about, you know, tents and people running up to the front and, you know, giving their lives to Jesus, which is great. You know, I hope that happens. But historically, a revival has been when God has really breathed out a spirit and, and there's just been a great awakening or huge tons of, of movement of people coming to Christ and turning back to Christ and whole civilizations changed because of it. And one of the things Martin Lloyd-Jones is a, a pastor who um, has studied great revivals throughout history. And one of the things he said that every single revival had in common is that right at the very beginning, um, the family, um, the the biblical uh, vision for the family began to be seen and practiced. That was at the beginning of every single revival. There was a lot of variables, that the different, but the thing that they all had in common was that that, that biblical view of what the family was. Your Deuteronomy six, um, you know Ephesians six, and these different scriptures. But here's Malachi four six says, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, uh, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so my prayer, I think it should be our prayer, the church's prayer, is that, that God would turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers and that fathers would yeah. begin to do what they're supposed to. Amen. So we'll end with that. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, and until next time, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry. Amen.